This is the end of our Genesis series. And the reason why I chose that kid's talk with the basket of vegetables turned upside down to be a face is because that's what we've been seeing in the last year and a half of Genesis sermons all along, is all of these real stories, like the individual vegetables, the turnips and the rutabagas and the onions and whatever, the stories cohere and make sense in and of themselves. We learned about creation. We learned about Abraham. We learned about Jacob and all of these characters. But when you view them and orient them through the lens of Jesus, they all show us something of his glory. So to wrap up the Genesis series, I want to do a 30,000 foot flyover journey of the whole book and turn the picture upside down for you with God's help to see Christ. Now, I, I usually open the sermons, this is why I got confused, is I usually open a sermon by saying, you can turn with me in your Bibles to fill in the blank. We're preaching through 50 chapters today, I don't know what to say. <laughs> I don't know where to tell you to turn to yet. Um, so I'll just say, please fasten your seatbelts because we're preparing for takeoff on this journey. And as we do this flyover journey, we can look out our proverbial windows and we're going to see 10 ways that Genesis helps us see and savor the glory of Jesus. So starting with number one, the image of God. This is the first way. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And on the sixth day of creation, he created man and woman, and he gave them a gift. It was the gift of royalty. We call it the image of God. So here's Genesis 1, 27 and 28. You can turn there with me if you like. Genesis 1, starting in verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. It's the gift of royalty. You hear it in the language. That gift then comes not just with a title, not just with a crown, so to speak, but with responsibilities, just like being real royalty does. It comes with a throne, dominion, rule, authority. So just by being human, you are an imager of God. You are made in God's image, just like someone born into a royal family is royalty just because of their birth. But someone, and it doesn't take much watching of the crown to realize this, that someone who's born into the royal family doesn't necessarily act royal. And it's the same way with people. God said, you are royalty. Now act like royalty. You are the image of God. Now image God. Show the world what God is like. That's the whole purpose of being a sub-king and queen under the king of the universe. Live in a way that reflects God's glory and God's goodness to the world around you. And it doesn't take long in the story, because we're in Genesis 1, flip a page to Genesis 3, before Adam and Eve didn't do that. They ate the fruit that they weren't supposed to eat, 
And we all, from that point on, stopped living like God's royal children. Until Jesus came along. Colossians 1, uh, if you want to turn there, you may. I'm going to keep the pace, though, so you have to really, it's like a sword drill, if you know what that is. Colossians 1, 15 through 17 says this, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Reality coheres in Christ, and he is royalty through and through not by gift, but by nature. We're royalty by gift, right? God gave us this gift and made us this way graciously. Jesus is. He is royalty. And that means he's not only royalty by birth, but he alone has perfectly, by being himself and living according to his character, he's lived it. He is the image of God and he perfectly imaged God. He so perfectly lived out the character of God. Every word, every thought, every interaction, every, every aspect of his life, he so perfectly did it that he could say with 100% integrity, this is in John 14, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. That is a staggering claim. Jesus is the perfect imprint of God's nature and character so that if you want to know what God the Father is like, you just have to look at Jesus. And if you know Jesus, then you know God. That's the first thing, the image of God. Number two, Jesus's righteousness, right? Remember 10 things that Genesis shows us about the glory of Christ. So we're climbing up now to 30,000 feet. We're getting there. And we've moved from Genesis 1 to Genesis kind of 6 through 9 through those, those chapters. And if, you know, let's pretend you're all on an airplane. Here's the center aisle. If you look out your windows, you'll see uh, that the earth is in bad shape. People are at war down there. And evil and wickedness and selfishness and pride are taking over. And no one fears God, and no one loves God, and no one listens except for this one guy, and his name is Noah. And to judge the wickedness of the world, God is going to send a flood, like a worldwide cleansing baptism. He will wash away all of the wicked, leaving only the righteous in their place, but there's just that one man. But because Noah was righteous, because he believed God, he was saved from the flood, but not just him, he was saved with his whole family. In other words, to reverse that, his family was saved, right? Shem, Ham, and Japheth, his sons were saved, not because of their righteousness, but because of Noah's. That's an important concept that Genesis helps us see. Because of Adam's unrighteousness, many were condemned. But because of Noah's righteousness, a few were saved. How much more does that pattern hold true in Christ? 
Romans 5, 17 says this. For if because of one man's trespass, that's Adam's, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. One man's sin brought calamity on the whole world, and the one man, Jesus' righteousness, brought salvation to many. We're not saved from God's just wrath because of our righteousness, but because of Jesus' righteousness. Noah saved eight. Jesus saves billions. And that takes us to number three. The third way is union with Christ. This is the the technical doctrinal nerd term for um, something that I don't have another word for. So union with Christ. So now we're reaching like top speed. I'm just going to keep going, right? We're at cruising altitude and it's beginning to rain. So I hope you can see through your windows. But if you do look down, you'll see that this one righteous man down there is building something, some large construction project. And we call it an ark. That's just a weird Hebrew. I don't know why we call it that. It just is, it means a box. He's literally building a floating box in modern parlance, a a boat. It's raining because God is about to flood the world. And everyone and everything in that ark will be saved. The only safe place to be when the judgment waters come is in the ark. And if you want to be saved From God's wrath and judgment, the only safe place to be is in Christ. That's the concept of union with Christ. When we believe on Jesus, he does a miraculous thing by his power and through his spirit. And he unites us to Christ so that we are one. Just like your head is united to your body, we are the body of Christ and he is the head of the church. Romans 8.1 says this. Listen to the in Christ language. Romans 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Outside of Christ there is. There are the floodwaters, so to speak. But in Christ, the flood cannot touch us here. Number four faith credited as righteousness. If we've understood Genesis 3 and and how we got into this sinful state, if we've understood that clearly, then by the time we get to Noah, we should have a question in our minds, right? If all of humanity was broken and Noah's a human, then isn't Noah broken too? In other words, how is Noah righteous? Great question. Glad you asked. Thank you. He is a descendant of Adam, right? So he's inherited that sin. He's born in that debtor's prison. But the answer to the question of how is he righteous, it's found in Genesis 15, verse 6. It's talking about Abram. It says, And he, Abram, believed the Lord, and the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. It doesn't say Abram acted righteously and the Lord observed that he was righteous. It says he believed God. And God said, I will take that belief and I will credit to your account 
a righteousness that is not your own. That is not just what happened with Abram. That is the nature of how sinful people like me and Noah get righteous. We simply believe God and he credits it to our account. Because ultimately the object of our faith, what we believe in, when we say believe the Lord, he's ultimately putting his faith in Jesus, though he didn't know him by name. It was the same for Noah. It was the same for Abraham. It was the same for all the Old Testament saints. All of the promises of God find their yes and amen in Jesus. So every time someone had faith in God and in his promises in the Old Testament, the object of their faith though they didn't even see it clearly, was the person of Jesus Christ. Genesis 15 teaches us that it's not our good deeds that make us righteous. Only resting on Jesus to be and do everything that we can't be and everything that we can't do. God looks at that resting, that ceasing from work, and he says, have my righteousness. I will count you righteous now. So God said to Noah, build an ark. And it didn't make any sense to him. But he chose to believe God and rest on God's wisdom and power and not his own. And God credited to Noah righteousness. And God said to Abram, I'm going to give you an unbelievably large number of descendants. When he was way too old to have children and his wife was barren and old. And instead of relying on what he thought he could reckon to be true, He believed God, and God credited to him as righteousness. When we want to be saved from our sins, and rather than trying to do and be better on our own strength, we simply rest on Jesus to be and do what we can't. God credits that to our account as righteous, and he wipes the sin away. Just like in the days of Noah, when God looked down on the earth and said, they're all wicked, but there's a righteous man. When you believe Jesus, rest on Jesus, trust in Jesus, God looks down at this world and points to you and says, there's a righteous man, there's a righteous woman. That's amazing grace. Romans 4, 5 says this, to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. All right, let's keep cruising. Uh, number five, is that, num- yeah, number five, Jesus, our substitute. So the seatbelt sign is still on. <laughs> Look out your windows now to Genesis 22. Um, and there's, we're passing over a mountain peak and there's something strange happening on this mountain because God had tested Abraham with a very severe test. The severest in all of scripture, I think. See, he'd promised Abraham that uncountably large number of descendants would be through his son that he didn't have yet, named Isaac. And one day God said to Abraham, I want you to sacrifice Isaac to me. And it's stunning that we don't have any insight into how he felt, Abraham, hearing that. Um, We don't know if he raged at God, if he wept. He may have laid down and passed out. Uh, We don't know if he argued, pled. Uh, 
the story is more powerful for not knowing those details because it asks us the question, how would you feel? How should we feel? But he believed God. He believed God's promise that he would have all those descendants through Isaac. So he reckoned, well, apparently, I'm going to have to go through with this and God's going to raise him from the dead because God keeps his promises. So he did it. He went through with it. And as he's raising the knife, here's what you can just see out your window. It's a ram caught in the thicket. And an angel shouts, stop. Don't, don't lower that knife. Don't do it. You were tested. You believed. And God provided a substitute. The boy can live, but the ram must die in his place. Jesus, that's two pictures of Jesus in one. Jesus is both the beloved son of the father, going up the mountain, bearing the wood of his own sacrifice on his back. Like a sheep led to the slaughter, he was silent and opened not his mouth. Jesus is seen in the picture of Isaac, but Jesus is seen profoundly in the picture of the ram caught in the thicket. We deserve God's wrath for our sins. I deserve God's wrath for the things that I've done and thought and said and haven't done in my life. But I have a substitute in Christ. You have a ram caught in the thicket who has been appointed by God for you. That's number five. All right, now we're flying. Number six. Number seven, number six, dressed in Jesus's righteousness. This is why I don't preach 10-point sermons, is I can't count that, that high. <laughs> dressed in Jesus's righteousness is the sixth thing that helps us see and enjoy the glory of Jesus in Genesis. So now we've passed Genesis 22, we're coming to Genesis 27. Remember Noah's descendant, Abraham, had Isaac. Isaac had two sons, Esau and Jacob. And as the oldest son, the firstborn son, Esau, was in line for the inheritance of the firstborn and the blessing of the firstborn. But I'm sure you remember the story. What Jacob did was he dressed up in his older brother's clothes to receive the blessing from his blind father. Now, our Heavenly Father is the furthest thing from blind but we still must dress in our older brother's clothes to receive his blessing. Being a sinful human, like me, like all of us, it's like being dressed, metaphorically, in dirty rags. Just shredded, tattered, gross, smelly. Jesus, born without sin, is and always has been dressed in robes of righteousness. That's the metaphor at play. And in what Martin Luther called the glorious exchange, Jesus takes our dirty rags on himself and gives us his glorious robes of righteousness. And the Father blesses us while he receives the curse for our sin. That's why Galatians 3, 26 and 27 says this, in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God.
through faith. Pause. It doesn't say sons and daughters of God. Because, women, you in Christ receive firstborn son status, according to the old customs. That's the beauty of it. It's actually dignifying and elevating all of us to the position that Christ holds. You're treated like Jesus. That's why it says you're all sons of God. Continue. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. You've put him on like a robe. Baptism is the acted out picture of taking off our old garments of sin and putting on the righteousness of Christ. And it points to a new reality. We're now sons of God. We're a new creation. And that leads us to our seventh point, aptly named a new creation. Uh, (laughs) uh, Jacob, the same one who deceived his father for the blessing, was also the recipient of God's promises. And so you'll remember he fled his murderous brother Esau and ran far to the northeast to Paddan Aram. He got a wife and realized it was the wrong one and got a second wife. Um, He worked with his relative Laban for a very long time. And then he finally started back to the land of promise where his fathers had been. And on the way, something really profound happens. Like a new creation, he was given a new name. Jacob became Israel. And God repeats that new creation promise to him in Genesis 35, 10. Here's what it says. God said to him, Your name is is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. See, when God does acts of new creation, he follows it with his new creation blessing. Be fruitful and multiply. All the new creation stories in Genesis, and there's several, are followed by a repetition of that blessing. Be fruitful, multiply. And when we're created new creations in Christ, when Jesus stood up from the grave as a new creation to usher in new creation, he's the firstborn of all creation and the firstborn from the dead. What did he say to his disciples? All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them all that I have commanded you. In other words, be fruitful and multiply. It's a new creation. And when we encounter that risen Christ by faith, we become a new creation. I don't feel new, right? Like one day, I'm going to have hair again (laughs) in the resurrection. Like I will be a new creation. Outside, we are decaying and passing away. But with Christ inside, you are renewed. You are recreated. And the old self, the flesh, not this stuff, it's just a way of talking about the old you that is against God, 
it's passing away. And the new you, the real you, is alive in Christ forever. 2 Corinthians 5 says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So Jacob, Jacob was a scoundrel. He was a trickster, a deceiver, a brother backstabber. But in Christ, is a new creation. He had a new him, and it came with a new name to represent it. Jacob became Israel. The old was gone and the new had come. And Jesus, in all of his glory, can take all of our sordid pasts and rework it. Make it pass away and give you something entirely new. Whatever you've done, whatever's been done to you, you are not beyond the mighty recreative power of Jesus. It's what he does. He can turn you into something glorious. Let's go to number eight. Jesus's humility and honor. So Jacob, Israel, had 12 sons. That's why we have the 12 tribes of Israel. Each one of those sons became a a chieftain of their tribes. And one of his sons, Joseph, we've just finished four weeks studying Joseph and Judah. Joseph paints an incredible picture of the glory of Jesus in his humility and honor. We've talked about this a few weeks ago. Joseph was humbled down to the pit and then went even lower in prison, falsely accused. And through it all, he remained loyal to God. His integrity held. He entrusted all of his good, all of his honor to God. Instead of taking it for himself, instead of reaching and grasping, trying to forge your own good and be your own reality. And Joseph's not just a good example. He's more than a good example. He's a blazing arrow pointing toward our Lord Jesus. And Jesus gives us more than an example, not less. He gives us the power to do the same thing. We've read it a thousand times. I'll never stop. Let's read Philippians 2, 5 through 11 again. Listen closely. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped after, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. There's so much there. But Paul's not just saying, do what Jesus did. He's not saying, be humble because Jesus was humble. It's more than that. He's saying, in Christ, you have the mind of Christ. In other words, you have the power 
the new you is created to follow the example of Jesus. And only the new you can, by God's grace, through his spirit. You can be humble like Jesus because Jesus was humble and exalted him. Not an example, but power. Here's what I mean. The reason why we struggle to follow good moral examples as Christians is because we're afraid. If I follow Jesus in humility, if I follow him in honesty, if I confess my sins to a brother or sister, I'm afraid of what will happen to me. I'm afraid of the consequences. I'm afraid of the shame. I'm afraid of the social repercussions. I'm afraid of the financial repercussions. Whatever they are, we're afraid. And because Jesus entrusted himself all the way to God, went all the way into death, and God raised him from the dead, and he ascended to the right hand of the Father, and is alive evermore in a glorious new creation resurrection body with all glory and honor and power. Because that happened, now we know. See, we're in Christ. And if you're in the ark, you go where the ark goes, don't you? So that's your future in Christ, which means what do you have to fear? You see, it's more than an example, it's power. We can follow Christ with that kind of humility. We can entrust ourselves to God because we're not guessing at how it's gonna turn out. The fear can be dismissed and we can follow Christ boldly and entrust ourselves to God. All right, number nine, continuing the cheesy airplane analogy. We're beginning our descent for landing. <laughs> so consider again the portrait of Jesus, our Redeemer. Jesus, our Redeemer, that we saw in Judah near the end of Genesis. Judah, who pledged his life to ransom little Benjamin from captivity and return with him to their father. It was a beautiful turn of phrase when Judah says this in chapter 44 of Genesis. He says this to Joseph before he knows who Joseph is. How can I go back to the father unless the boy is with me? Judah knows the father loves the boy. And if I love the father, how can I go back without bringing back everyone the father loves? As Jesus walked the hillsides around Jerusalem, I imagine him looking down on the mass of people maybe gathered for a festival and saying perhaps to himself, how can I go back to the Father unless they're with me? The Father loves you. That's why he sent Jesus. To give his life as a ransom for many, as Mark 10.45 says. The Father loves you. And so, Jesus is saying to you this morning that he was unwilling to go back to the Father without you. And he loved you to the end. See, Judah didn't end up giving his life for Benjamin. He didn't have to go through with it. Jesus saw it through. He went all the way. And he ransomed you. Jesus loves the Father, and so Jesus loves who the Father loves. In fact, in our call to worship this morning in Hebrews 12, 
you're called an incredible thing. You're called the joy set before him. You're the one thing Jesus didn't have that he wanted, if I can put it that way. Being more poetic than doctrinally accurate. But Hebrews calls you the joy that was set before him. So when he was bleeding and crying and naked and humiliated, nailed to an execution rack, his love for the Father and his love for you kept him steady. Again, Hebrews 12. Jesus is the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. In other words, when Jesus was on the cross in agony, he could have called a battalion of angels to take him down. He had the authority. But he was held in place, as many poets have said, not by nails, but by love. Last point, point number 10. Jesus is coming soon. We have seen so far nine ways that Genesis helps us see and savor the glory of Jesus. Um, This was one of the most enjoyable sermons to prepare, to be honest with you, because we have just covered so much gospel doctrine from the first, probably most ancient Bible or book of the Bible. It's all there. The glory of Christ is there on every page. And so is his return. So let's land the plane here. Genesis 50, 24. You can turn there if you like. Genesis chapter 50, verse 24. This is about how the book of Genesis ends. Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Now, one of the glories of Jesus in Genesis and in all the Bible is that God makes good on his promises. God makes good on his promises. You see in the beginning, Genesis 1.28, be fruitful and multiply is a command, right? You do it. Now he gives his blessing, which is, as we saw on September 18th, 2022, when we (laughs) covered it, it's also God's commitment to see it through. But it starts, be fruitful and multiply is a command. You, You do it. This is your responsibility. And as God reveals more and more of his character and his promises, by the time we get to Jacob, he says, I will make you fruitful and I will multiply you. He has made a promise. And Exodus 1.7 wraps up the whole book of Genesis and launches us into the new story with a report on the promise of God. And it says, the people of Israel were fruitful and multiplied greatly in the land. God made good on his promises. God always makes good on all of his promises. That's one of the glories of Jesus. But another one of the glories of Jesus in Genesis is that 
in Christ, all of God's promises are intensified. Here's what I mean. Jacob was promised the presence of God, right? I will be with you. But what do we inherit? We inherit the person of God, the Holy Spirit, living in us. That's an intensification of the promise. Right? That's a fulfillment and an intensification. Abraham was promised a son. We inherited the son of God. Abraham was promised a multitude of peoples would come from him. We inherit the kingdom of God made up of innumerable people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Far beyond the dimmest imaginings of Abraham. And Abraham was promised a patch of land in the Middle East called Canaan. But we inherit the new heavens and the new earth in their entirety. The new creation. Every promise in Christ is both fulfilled and intensified. So when Joseph says, God will visit you and God will bring you up out of this land to the promised land, we get a better promise fulfilled in Christ. God won't just visit us and take us to the Middle East. God will indeed visit us, right? King Jesus is going to return in glory, riding on the clouds. And when he does, he will usher us into the true promised land, the intensified promised land, into new creation. A newly created heavens and earth which will be entirely full of the knowledge of the glory of the Lord like the waters cover the sea. See, one of the reasons I love church so much with y'all is because here we get a taste of what it's like to be full of the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. But one day we'll be fully at saturation point, the entirety of reality. No one will have to say, know the Lord, because we'll all know him from the least to the greatest. That's our future. That's our future promised land. And it's not at the end of the book of Genesis. It's not a promise to return to the beginning of the book. If people tell you that we have Eden in our future, don't listen to them. We're not going back to Eden, the golden age. This is the identification, if I can put it that way, of reality. It's the gardening of creation. We're not going back to a little garden mountainside. The whole world is becoming a perfect garden, far beyond what the Garden of Eden ever was. And we won't need the sun to shine anymore because God himself will be so tangibly with you, so beautifully, non-mysteriously revealed to you as our light and our strength. And in that day, we will not look back and say to God, why did you wait so long? We might say that now. But we will not ask him, why did you wait in that day? And we won't say, God, why didn't you just snap your fingers and make everything perfect in the beginning? You could have done it. We might say that now. But we won't say it then. What we'll say with our whole heart has got to be something like this. Thank you. Because without your wisdom and your plan, we would never have known about your mercy. 
we could never have truly enjoyed your glory in its fullness had we not been allowed to walk this path. So just like Joseph says in Genesis 50, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. We'll say thank you for taking all of our evils in hand. Thank you for the sin and the sorrow that we endured so that we might see real good. So Genesis ends by saying to all of us weary travelers and sojourners in a foreign land, God will visit you and God will bring you up out of this land and he will bring you to the land he swore to your fathers. And Jesus says to us in Revelation 22, 6 to 7, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Let's prepare our hearts quietly for the Lord's table in prayer.